We'll be in Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it is always hard when you're picking out a text to preach on, uh, when you can only do it for one week, like, like those of us uh, who, who get to fill in. Uh, there's actually an extra level of removing yourself from the situation, from the equation that comes with the weekly verse-by-verse exposition. Uh, you're kind of forced to go where the text takes you. So the danger of just getting to pick one out is that you're really prone to pick the passages that you want to preach about instead of really praying about what the congregation needs to hear the most. So a couple of weeks ago, when Travis asked me what I was planning on preaching on, I was kind of falling into this trap. And there was this passage that I'd really been looking into quite a bit, and I was really excited to really dig into it. And it was totally going to be one of those like convicting, like we all doubt our faith afterwards type of sermons. Um, and then that's where I was going, but... Upon relating my desire to preach this passage to Travis, he asked me why I thought that you all needed to hear that. And apparently, I am drawn to those types of passages, probably based on a lot uh, to do with with my past serving in Kentucky and um, some of the things that you see in the Bible Belt. I'm apparently drawn to passages like that, and he suggests that maybe I, for you guys, instead do something out of Philippians or 1 Thessalonians or something that would be more joyful and encouraging to you. And I I share that story with you, not necessarily to explain why I'm preaching the text I'm preaching on, uh, because (laughs) as you can see from your bulletin and from the passage we just read, I ignored the suggestion from godly church leadership in order to preach a sermon on how we should respect godly church leadership. (laughs) I will, don't worry, reference Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. But now I actually share that story with you as a demonstration of just how much your elders here at Grace care for you and care for your souls. So I did take his advice seriously, and I, and I thought and prayed more about what would be good for me to preach to you, and I became convinced that this would be an appropriate passage because it's one of those passages that's very hard for elders to preach on. Elders, it's, it's tough for them to preach on. In fact, just recently this week, I, I heard a pastor's conference question and answer panel where some, a pastor asked a very well-respected pastor, um, okay, how do you preach Hebrews thirteen seventeen? And And that pastor said, you do not preach that until you've been at the church a long time. So I decided rather than, you know, waiting for the elders to get be here for a really long time, ready for Travis to be here a long time, I would preach it to you. But since my family has been at this church, I have been so impressed so impressed by all of the elders and the way that they love us and pray for us and watch over us and care for us. And and it is quite appropriate that we take the time to consider just what our responsibilities are in light of the godly leadership that we have been blessed with. So you'll notice in your outline that's in your bulletin, I have two main points 
And just so you know and so you don't get stressed out here, I'm going to spend almost the whole time on the first one. So when I say now to point two with like five or ten minutes left, don't, don't stress out. So the first point is how we are to respond to godly leadership. And the second one is why we must respond this way. But before we get to either of those, I want you to notice that I said in the title that this is in response to godly church leadership. So everything I'm about to say to you guys presupposes this. Uh, A lot of times when this text is preached, a good deal of time is spent trying to qualify who's godly church leadership, who this text applies to and who doesn't. Uh, We have been given the list for the qualifications of elders in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 so that we know what godly leaders look like. And I'm going to assume that you're a little familiar with those passages. We shouldn't just think that we should obey and submit to anyone who has been given the title of pastor or elder. The internet can make anyone a pastor in a matter of minutes. So that title doesn't necessarily mean anything. You're not required to obey and submit to unbiblical leadership any more than uh, we would be required to submit to a government that tells us to do ungodly things. So the normal biblical practice is to submit to the government, but when they violate the law of God, that's where the submission ends. Same with a wife who is typically supposed supposed to be in loving submission to her husband. If he asks her to do something ungodly, that there's a higher submission to God that she must be obedient to. But we have these lists in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, and and I am pretty confident that if you take those lists and you get to know the elders here, you will see these characteristics displayed more and more. What I I want to preface then this whole sermon with is this understanding that what we'll be looking at today is a command and not a suggestion. And it carries the same weight that all of Christ's commands carry. And unless then you can demonstrate that the leadership here is ungodly, then you are obligated to treat it as you do anything else that God commands you to do. And by the way, if you do think that there is ungodly leadership here, then you have a Matthew 18 responsibility to go and talk to them about it. I I promise you that, that if you see that, they want to hear it. I promise you that the elders do. I'm not joking with you when I say that, that if you've seen anything like that, please go to them because they want to know about it more than, more than you care about it, probably. So that is how I want to make sure that we frame this conversation. I want to make sure we frame this sermon that way. We shouldn't be asking the questions, should we do this? as we listen to this, but we should be asking ourselves, how am I obeying this? And how can I do it better? So, with that in mind, let's take a look at the first point in your outline. How we are to respond to godly leadership. How we're to respond to godly leadership. And I want to talk about three specific ways that we're commanded to do this in this passage. The first way this passage tells us to respond to godly leadership is to obey them. This is a unique or this is a different word for obey. It doesn't imply, it's not the word obey that applies just lining up and following orders. It's not the same word for obey that we find in in Ephesians 6.1 and Colossians 3.20 where where children are told to obey their parents. 
That's, this is the word uh, hupakuo. Uh, this is the idea of doing something when you hear it. As soon as you hear it, you do it. So when I'm telling one of my kids to do something, I may or may not give them a reason for it. It's, you know, it's certainly a good idea to let your kids know why you're asking them to do certain things that you tell them to do, but that's not a prerequisite for their obedience. The sound of my voice is the prerequisite. Children are supposed to hear the voice of their parents and respond to it in obedience, whether they feel like it or not. But that's not the word for obey that we have here. This, this word for obey comes from the Greek word, is derived from the Greek word patho, the word that means to persuade. So when it's used in this way, the idea is not just to blindly obey, but rather to be persuaded by. The idea here is, is obedience related to teaching, to the teaching, rather than obedience to commands. So what the, what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us through this is our responsibility to have our thinking be shaped by the teaching of the elders and of the pastors. So the command here is not for us to just sit around and wait for orders from the elders. That would actually be easier for most of us, probably, to just wait for a command and then kind of just do whatever you want in the meantime. No, what is being commanded here for us to do is to sit attentively under their teaching and then to take what is being taught and to make those beliefs your beliefs and those convictions your convictions. And not just something that you heard the pastor say once. We don't listen to it with a skeptical heart. We don't, we don't pick and choose from what we are hearing and then ultimately decide to use it to reinforce the things that we already have no trouble believing and then not applying the stuff that we find to be more difficult. Now, a lot of people, they, they wrongly use the passage in Acts 17 about the Bereans and to justify being kind of skeptical of everything that you're taught. But that's not the picture we see in the passage to the, about the Bereans in Acts 17. You can go there if you want uh, to see this, but in Acts 17, 10 and 11, in Acts 17, 10 and 11, it says this, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So I want you to see that the Bereans aren't receiving the word with skepticism. They're receiving it with eagerness. They're excited about it, and they want to see what is being taught in the Scriptures for themselves. That's the attitude they have. When we have godly leadership, we should have kind of a default understanding of trust when we hear them speak, and an eagerness and a joy when we receive the Word from them. Our responsibility is to take what we are hearing our pastors teach us from the Scripture after all of the study that they've been doing, then examine the scriptures and see their conclusions become our conclusions. We get the benefit of their countless hours of study 
the countless hours of study that they put into it, we get that benefit in one hour or so. We're to listen to the word as it is exposited to us with an attitude that is eager and excited to change in the way that God would have us change. That's how we take it in. And the other thing, by the way, the other thing that this word patho implies is a desire then to hear that teaching. If we want to hear it, if we want to be convicted by it, if we want to be persuaded by what is being taught, then we will have a desire to hear it. So when I'm telling my kids to do something, they're pretty much off the hook if they aren't in a position to hear me. Right? That's, that's the, the word for obedience in Ephesians 6.1. It implies their obedience in hearing my voice. I'm not justified in punishing my child if... Uh, if they weren't present to hear me say it, if they're outside when I'm telling them to do something, I'm not justified in punishing them for not obeying that command unless they're outside because they were disobeying me. Then, then I'm justified in that. But uh, by, using a, by using this form, the form of the word patho here, and remembering then that this is telling us to have a desire to be shaped by the teaching of our elders, then we can see that obedience to this command means that we will try to be here as much as possible when this teaching is taking place. You, you need to understand then what's being said here. If there is teaching, if there is teaching that is going on here that would help you in your spiritual growth and sanctification, you are not off the hook because you weren't present to hear it. You're responsible for why you weren't here. I'm sure there are some good and biblical reasons for not being here sometimes, but is that the case for you? We have many opportunities for you to grow as a result of godly church leadership here putting in a lot of hours studying the Word and preparing it for you. Their responsibility, their responsibility is to do this diligently and accurately. That's their responsibility. That's between them and God. And your and my responsibility before God is to be here, absorb it, and apply it. So as was just mentioned in the announcement, Apologetics and Evangelism starts back up next week. Our Shepherds Theologian Men's Study starts back up here on the 12th. Route 66 starts back up in September, and we have Sunday school classes today. Will you be there for those? And if not, why not? Make no mistake, you are accountable to God for the way you answer that question. So, we're to be obedient to their teaching, obedient to their teaching the second way, the second way we see here that we're to supposed to respond to godly sh- leadership is to submit to them. To submit to them. And, and most of us who have grown up in the church, we know what this word is, right? It's, it's the idea of yielding to or not resisting someone else's authority. This means that we trust their leadership and we help them to take us in the direction where they have been led by God to take us. 
This doesn't mean that we never say anything if we see a potential problem. But there's a huge difference between making helpful observations and trying to take over the controls. Right? Like, like a passenger who, on a plane who, who notices a flap fall off the wing. Right? That's something you'd want to know. They're, they're responsible to get that information to the captain so that he can pilot the plane better. But a wrong response would be to take that information, burst into the cockpit, and try to take control the, of, the, of the wheel, of the, whatever that is that you fly with, to try and take control of that, because they, just because they know something that they don't think the captain knows. No, they re- relay that information to the captain so that the captain can pilot the plane better. Submission is not something that can be forced. As uh, Dr. John Street says, uh, it can't be forced because it has to do with the attitude of the heart. So, so we could force someone to do something, but we can't force someone to submit. Because submission means that their heart has changed in such a way that they want to yield want to yield in this way because they trust God. Submission comes easy then when you understand that God has raised up faithful men to lead the church, and that is his plan. And then when you look around and you see that our church is being led by qualified men, that should make submission easy. So if we see this, And if we're obedient to the other commands in Scripture that we're about to look at about about how we're to respect and honor these men, then then we'll have no problem with the submission thing. So let's just real quick take a look at a couple more uh, passages that you really should know well in regard to this topic that we're talking about today that should help in our attitude of submission. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, which says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So here we, have, here we have another passage that tells us about our responsibility to those who labor among us and who are over us. Here we are told to respect them and to esteem them highly because of their work, because of their work. The word for labor here is one that, that means to struggle and to strive and to, to become weary performing a task. This is what the elders, this is what the pastor does. We're to respect them and esteem them highly in love because we understand that. This is work. The work of admonishing the church, the work of warning us, the work of instructing us is very important work. It's the work of purifying the church of Christ It is the work of making the bride of Christ ready for the day of the wedding. This is the most significant type of work that there is. And it carries with it then 
the greatest amount of responsibility. So it makes sense, then, that we would have a great respect for those who undertake it and are faithful in it, qualified men who are faithful to do it. This truth then points us to the next passage I want to look at. Uh, turn over a few more pages to 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. It says, Let the elders who ru- rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So that, that verse 18, that, that's in reference to the church's responsibility to provide for those who labor in preaching and teaching. But it also says because it's such a difficult job that carries so much responsibility, if you have someone doing this job well, then they should be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor. If a pastor or elder really understands their responsibility then they are under more pressure to do a good job than anyone in any other profession. So when I was working at Starbucks, there were times where I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to get something done or to make sure something happened, but there was never anything of any type of eternal significance on the line with anything I did there. No one's eternal soul was affected by what happened to them at Starbucks. Do many customers act like that's the case? Yes, they do. They absolutely do. But the reality is that there is not. Right? If we messed something up there, the worst we did was ruin someone's day. And by the way, if that ruined their day, then it's someone who has a very unhealthy priorities. The decisions that elders make in regard to leading the church will have eternal ramifications. We'll talk more about this in, in just a bit, too. But notice also that it says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There's that word again for labor, that, that toil, that working to the, to the point of weariness. Do, do you understand the toil that goes into that task? A faithful pastor knows the seriousness of what he is doing when he comes up here. They're entrusted with a message, a message that's not their own, and they're told that they must get that point across as clearly as possible. This is why it's such a labor. This is why when you're preparing a message, you'll sit in front of a computer screen and just stare at it for a long time. And then you'll type something. And then you'll delete it. And then you'll type something else. And then you'll go on a walk around the building. And then you'll come back and you'll delete it again. And then you'll remember something from earlier on that you think you also need to delete. And then you collapse on your desk with your face in your Bible and you cry out to God to help you, help you not bring reproach on Him by saying something inaccurate. And none of us get to see Travis while he's preparing his sermon for us. 
I've got to see a little bit of it now since I've been here. I've seen him here until long after most of us have had dinner and gone to bed. It's because he understands the tremendous responsibility he has up here. And he absolutely refuses. I love this about him. He refuses to move on until he is sure, until he is positive that he understands the word that he's studying, the text that he's studying. He labors over every word, every phrase, and you can hear it when he's up here, right? Every phrase, every part of speech, every grammatical or syntactical intricacy, because he knows, he knows the ramifications of what happens if he gets it wrong. This is why I get so angry when people say negative things about expositional preaching. Why? And you should, too. When people like Pastor Andy Stanley said a few months ago about expository preaching, I quote, Guys that preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy. Unquote. A statement like that makes me think a pastor like that has never actually prepared a real sermon in his whole life. How much more easy it would be to prepare a sermon if you could just skip over the verses that are harder to understand. If you could just do all the stuff that made perfect sense to you the first time you read it. You could just fit into the things that you already enjoy speaking about. How much easier would that be? Brothers and sisters, we should praise God every day. Every day you should praise God for this fact. We have a pastor who refuses to do this, who loves us so much and more importantly, fears the living God so much that he would never do anything but diligently bring us the whole counsel of God, no matter how much extra work that might require of him. We all come to church every Sunday. Hopefully we're ready for a great time of fellowship, and hopefully we're ready to hear the voice of God preached through the Word, and that is proper, and we should feel that way. The pastor comes into this building with some of that same joy, but also bearing the great weight that comes with being the mouthpiece of God to his people. I understand that. As you see Travis in the morning here, actually anytime you see him, but, but especially Sunday morning, understand that and be praying for him. Don't fall into that trap that, that so many regular churchgoers across our country fall into in this kind of consumeristic culture there aren't very many people who have prepared and delivered an expositional sermon before. But there are many people who have no problem thinking that all the sermons that they have heard in their life make them qualified sermon critics. Y yes, the more you study the Bible and the more you pay attention to the biblical teachers the better you will be at discerning whether or not a sermon you hear is biblical. And that's what we hope each of you here are able to do as you go out and hear any sermon. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being a critic of style or of tone or of length. Just kind of listening to it like you would any speech or like one of those judges on the reality shows, like, oh, it was pretty good, but I've heard him do better before. Or that's not his best effort, but, I, you know, we'll give him another shot next week. I'm sure he'll bring his game up, things like that. Trust me, the teachers and preachers here work, are working hard on getting better at their delivery. They know that that is their responsibility and they're working at it. But our responsibility, our responsibility, the responsibility you need to worry about is to come in and to glean everything we can from the sermon. To come in here knowing that what has been prepared for us has been work. It has been hard work sculpted for us and bathed in prayer and sometimes tears. Whatever we do on Saturday night should be in preparation for hearing the sermon on Sunday morning. We should come in here praying that God will do in our hearts through his word what he has been doing in Travis's heart throughout the week through the same passage to make the convictions that he's gaining our convictions. To come in here and not really pay attention or to just kind of take one thing and then space out the rest of the time. Or worse, to decide to, to sleep in on Sunday because you stayed out so late on Saturday and I'll just read a devotion or something later. To do that would be like coming home to a meal that your wife had spent the whole afternoon preparing with you in mind. A meal that meets your nutritional needs better than you know and will help you grow and will help you to be more healthy. It'd be like coming home, seeing that meal prepared for you, and then scraping it off into the trash, grabbing a bag of chips, and going and snacking on that instead. Once you understand the importance of the office of elder, all the toil that goes into the work of the pastor, the tremendous weight on their shoulders to communicate his word to you, the tremendous weight with every decision they make and with every lesson and sermon that they prepare. Once you understand all these things, it should be so much easier to submit to them with all your heart and to thank God for providing qualified men to make these kind of decisions and to bear that kind of responsibility. In light of all of that, why would you even want to grab the controls? Why do you want your hands anywhere near them? No, let's, let's thank God for them, respect them, honor them, joyfully follow and submit to them. There's a third responsibility here that we see. A third one. We have a responsibility, according to this passage, to make their job a joy, which I know seems like that would be impossible based on the description we just talked about. But have you ever thought about that? That's your job. Yes, they have a responsibility to be joyful in the work, no matter how bad it might get or how hard we might make it for them. But this is none of our concern. We need to focus on our job of doing everything we can to make it joyful for them. 
Let's flip over to Philippians. Just turn over to Philippians. We'll be in a few verses there. I want to see an example of what this might look like by going to this book. We can get some insights from this church into how to make our elders' jobs a joy to them because these people were clearly a joy to the Apostle Paul. Listen to how Paul talks about them in in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. He thanks God whenever he thinks of them with joy. That, that should be our goal. That's what we want our pastors, our elders to do when they think of us. So we should ask, what, what, what do they do? Why does he see them this way? Look at, look at verses 5 through 7. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he sees them. He sees them as his partners. He sees them as partakers in his work. He sees them as headed in the same direction he is. He's not fighting against them to get them to go in the direction that the gospel demands. No, he sees them as partners. Compare that to how he opens his letter to the Galatians, if you remember that. He is basically uh, forced at the beginning to remind them all that he's an apostle and that he has authority to confront them. And he does not say he's thankful for the direction that they're headed in. Now he basically says, so I, I heard you're deserting everything I ever told you and abandoning the gospel of God. No, he, he's, the Philippians are far from that. He's, he's able to see the Philippians as his partners. Look, look what else he says about them in, in verse 19 of chapter 1. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He, he knows. He knows that they're praying for him. He's, he's confident of this. Does our pastor know that you pray for him? Do our elders know you pray for them? Are you praying for them? Look down also at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So he sees them as those who are suffering with him, who are joining him in his suffering, as opposed to those who are causing the suffering. That's what we want to be. We want to be those who our pastor and our elders see as joining them in suffering, not causing their suffering. And if you look at the Philippians as a whole, if you look at the whole book, it just becomes evident that, that even though Paul is in prison and is in the midst of so much suffering, the church in Philippi is always a source of comfort for him. 
It's always a source of comfort for him because he sees that they have taken the things that he has taught them and they're applying them. So he sees that in them and he also sees and feels, he feels their support. He feels their actual support. Flip over to the last chapter of Philippians. Look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, where he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So we see here that they, they gave him gifts. They gave him gifts. And it's not like Paul was asking for the gifts. It's not like he needed them. He says earlier on in Philippians, he's, he has everything he needs in Christ. He knows that. But what he did was he understood their support that they were showing for what it was. It was confirmation to him that his ministry to them was not in vain. That it was being received by them rightly. It was a demonstration of their growth and understanding. Paul physically feels and sees the support of the Philippians. Do, do our elders feel this from you? Keep in mind, keep in mind here that the Philippians are far away from Paul. They're far away from Paul, and they're still able to make sure he knows this, to make sure he feels this. Your elders are among you every week, every week. Every time Travis finishes a sermon, he's right here. He's literally standing right here for you to express your gratitude to him. How do you think the Philippians would have responded if Paul was there with them and had just finished giving them a sermon? Do you think they would have turned to their spouse just said something like, okay, where'd you want to go for lunch today? No. They would make sure he knew. I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to give them physical gifts. Even though like, we as parents, we buy our teachers, uh, our kids' teachers, we buy them gifts, and, and they're merely teaching them temporal things sometimes evolution, which is bad. But we still give them gifts. So, so it would be maybe a good idea for you to consider that. But the important thing here is that they know how much we appreciate them. Let them know. Thank God for them. Definitely thank God for them. But don't merely thank God for them. Thank them. 
make it hard for Travis to get out of here on a Sunday morning because he has to wade through a sea of grateful people who are longing to express their thanks to him for all the work he's done in the last week. When you understand that this is how the Philippians were towards Paul, is it any wonder why he says the things he says about them? Why he says what he does in 1.8? Look back there at 1.8. He says, God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He yearns for them. He wants to be with them. This, this is how we're supposed to be. We, we have a responsibility to make their task a joy for them. A joy for them. We want them, when they're away from us, to be longing to see us again. To be longing to minister with us again. We want to be the source of their strength. We don't want to be Something that causes them groaning, like that verse says. You can go back to Hebrews now. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Compare the way Paul feels about the Philippians with the way that the people that Jeremiah was called to minister to make Jeremiah feel. You don't have to turn there, but you can. Listen to Jeremiah's words. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, about the people that he is called to minister to and how they make him feel. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Listen to this. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers. A company of treacherous men. Now, don't get me wrong. Jeremiah kept on ministering, even though his heart longed for a place in the desert just so he could be away from them all. And, and our elders here love the Lord so much that they would surely keep faithfully ministering to us even if that were true of them, even if that's how we made them feel. But come on, let's not be satisfied with that. Let's not, let's not just thank God. Thank you, God, for leaders that will put up with all of our garbage and junk and the fact that we refuse to listen to them and they're still going to keep doing it anyway because of their commitment to you. Thank you for that. But don't, that's not how we can be. That's not how we should be. It should be seen as our duty that's the command here in Hebrews. Our duty before God to do whatever we can to make their ministry a joyful ministry. When the trials of life come to them, when the weight of the office that they have looks like it's going to overwhelm them, feels like it's going to overwhelm them, let them be able to look upon us and be filled with strength and joy and keep going on because they see us. Let's not just be another one of the trials. The greatest way that this happens for them 
in case you want to know, you should, is found in the Apostle John's statement about those who have been under his leadership in 3 John 3 and 4. I won't make you turn there because it's really hard to find. 3 John 3 and 4, it says this, but write it down so you can go back and look at it. John says this to those that he has been ministering to. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What, why is this? Why is this what brings them the greatest joy? Why is it? It's because of the goal of their whole office, the point of their office. I'd like to use that statement to, to transition to the, the second point in your outline. Why we must respond the way that we must respond. Why we need to do these things. The reason that we must respond with a longing to hear and be obedient to their teaching. And why we must submit with honor and respect. And why we must do everything we can to make their job as joyful as possible is because they keep watch over our souls. They keep watch over our souls as those who must give an account. So, so we've already mentioned here, we've already talked a little bit about what that entails. Through, throughout this message, we've talked about that already. So, so I won't need, I hopefully don't need to spend a lot of time on this point. Hopefully you're getting that already. But the Greek word here for keeping watch is agrupineo, which, which indicates someone who is not just keeping watch, but having a continuous waking concern. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce thinks that the word implies that the watchman loses sleep over his job, and, and that seems like a pretty accurate understanding. If, you, if you're using a Bible with cross-references in it, then right here it almost certainly cross-references that word with Ezekiel 3 because of the term's close association with the concept of watchmen that we find in Ezekiel 3. Uh, this is, in fact, the, the same word that's used in the Septuagint in this verse. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, so if you would, turn to Ezekiel 3. Ezekiel 3, we're going to look at verses 16 through 21. This is God's word to Ezekiel. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth... You shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, 
but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Do you understand what's being said here? Do you see the weight of the responsibility of the one whom God calls to be a watchman? If any of us here, if any of us fall into sin, God holds us accountable. Don't get me wrong. We are responsible for our own sin. But there's an added layer of responsibility for the one who is a watchman. Not only are they responsible for their own sin, but they have the potential to be responsible for our sin, all of our sin. You know who you are. You know what you do. Can you imagine that? Elders have to bear the responsibility for our sin. They, they bear the responsibility for everything that goes on in here under their leadership. For, for me being up here, there's the elders have responsibility for some of the words that I am saying. That, that, that's horrifying. Ask, ask my wife what that's like to be responsible for the words I say. They have responsibility for those things. How horrifying must that be for them? Imagine that they don't sleep well a lot when they think about this. It's bad enough. It's bad enough that all of the undisguised sin out there seems to cause Christians to keep stumbling and falling into sin frequently and regularly. But we live in an age where false teaching is more prevalent than ever before. There's wolves in sheep's clothing, and they are everywhere. They have television shows, and they have radio programs, and podcasts, and books, and even churches. And every one of them advertises that they're there for the sheep. They're everywhere. Most conservative Christians in this country, they feel a lot of antagonism from the world, a world that is growing in its hostility towards Christianity. And for most of them, when they walk into the Christian section of a bookstore or walk into a Christian bookstore, they get kind of a sense of peace. And they feel like, at least in here, there, there's some comfort. There's some safety. You know what a godly pastor sees? When one of us walks into a Christian bookstore, they see a clueless sheep walking into a pit full of hungry, drooling wolves who are dressed up like sheep. And, and they're barely even trying to look like sheep anymore. And they're still going in there. 
This is why so many faithful pastors, faithful pastors are said to be negative. It's because they're taking this job so seriously when they stand up here and warn you of different authors and different pastors and different Christian music personalities. They're taking this job seriously because, as Paul said in, in that passage in Acts 20 that we looked at, as soon as he left, he knew as soon as he left, savage wolves would come and try to devour the flock. And even those from among their own midst, he was not being negative. He was sounding an alarm. That's what a watchman does. When godly leadership warns us about different authors and pastors and books, when godly leadership does this, it's not because they're jealous of the numbers of these so-called ministers. After what we've just talked about, why on earth would they, want, would they be jealous of someone who has more souls that they're responsible for? No, they're sounding an alarm. That's what being a watchman implies. That's your job when you're a watchman. If you begrudge the warnings of godly leadership here, and you keep going down a path of sin, you keep listening to the same false teaching, whether it be through books or preaching or music, because you feel like, that's just not as bad. It can't be as bad as that pastor is making it out to be. And you know that we have godly leadership here. You've seen that they're qualified, and you do this. Then you're just as foolish as a person who decides not to do anything when they hear the carbon monoxide alarm going off in their house because they stand up and go, I don't see any carbon monoxide. I must be fine. Now, God has placed them here to keep watch over us, to help us grow. And he holds them responsible to make sure that that happens. He holds them responsible. This is the ground for why we honor and respect them. This is why we obey their teaching, why we submit, because we recognize the responsibility that they bear. Hopefully most of you have some sort of understanding of that. And you know what it's like to be responsible for the safety of someone for maybe a period of time. And you know how scary that can be sometimes. And just a couple of months ago, um, some of us adults took the uh, youth on a relatively easy hike up to Horsetooth Falls. So as, as the new student director who had some responsibility over these kids... I would definitely feel a little uncomfortable from time to time as there would be some places where there's quite a drop-off on one side of the path and it would cause me to call out maybe once or twice to, to be careful and, and stop running and don't goof around over there. And I did. I, de I definitely pondered the wisdom of parental permission slips when I saw Scott and Carson way up on one of the rocks, far beyond the sign that said, do not go past here, that they both had to climb over to get to where they were. But even in that, I was fairly comfortable in the fact that if anything were to happen to any of these kids, they were all mature enough that it was still their parents' fault. <laughs> and I was also able to see and to kind of feel a sense of relief but at least I didn't have to deal with the responsibility 
that the leaders of another group that was there that day had to deal with. There was a group of leaders, of adults, who took dozens and dozens of preschoolers up there. And I I watched one of these poor guys trying like crazy to slowly and safely get his little group past one of the narrow parts of the path. He's doing this while one of the kids is, is wandering back in the opposite direction and another one is facing the wrong direction. So his, his back was to the, the overhang and he takes one step back while he's talking, not realizing that he's inches away from falling to, to death or, or certain injury. Watching him deal with this, they, they didn't seem to care they didn't seem to care about what their leader was thinking. Some of the kids, some of the kids had an appropriate level of fear, and they paid careful attention to everything the leader said, but the others were blissfully unaware of the amount of emotional turmoil they were no doubt putting this guy through as he tried not to let any of them die. <laughs> they probably, in fact, they probably, in their grumbling, saw him more as an obstacle to their enjoyment that day. We need to make sure that we're like the kids who make his job easier and take him seriously. Right? Most of you can feel that type of weight, right? the weight of responsibility. You know what we're talking about. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've been responsible for someone else. Surely you have or you've seen it. Now just think of the weight of the responsibility for souls. For souls. Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of this in, in that passage we read in Acts twenty twenty eight, he reminds them that these people, these people whom God has made you overseers of, were obtained by his blood, by his own blood. The Son of God had to die for us to become his possession. He had to die for us to become his possession. That is the value of, That's the value of what he has asked them to look over. That is what he has left in their care. Those he purchased with his blood. Can you imagine the weight of responsibility when you understand this? And unlike, unlike the leader of those preschoolers that day who was able to see the end, right? And he was able to get those kids there and then able to have peace knowing that the journey was over, elders never get to see that. Unless the Lord returns, no matter how faithful our elders are, they will never have the joy in this life of the satisfaction of a completed job. Just to see growth. They just keep pressing on until they die and hand it off to the next elder or pastor. That's what it means. They never get the, the, just the satisfaction, you know, that you get when, like, last night I mowed the lawn. When you're done mowing the lawn, you get a look out of it, and the lawn is mowed. It's done. It's complete. Or you're putting together a piece of furniture in one of those boxes, and it's really intimidating at the time, but then you get it done, and you get to see it complete. And imagine if you never got to see that. You got to maybe see something look more and more like the completed product, but you never had the satisfaction of seeing it done. This is the task 
of the elder, the pastor. Never getting to see it done. Constantly leading those preschoolers on an eternal path through danger. That's, that's their job. And furthermore, as, as I've heard John MacArthur say more than once, it is the only job, it's the only job in the world where you can never take any of the credit for the good that happens. You can't take any of the credit because you know that it's God who's doing the work. The only thing you're ever responsible for is any of the bad that happens. That's their plight. So we have to respond to godly leadership in the church in the way that we are commanded to because we understand the unbelievable amount of work and responsibility that goes into it, but also because, also because as this, the end of this verse says, it is to our advantage. The other reason is, is that we do this is because it's to our advantage. Do you want to grow in sanctification? Do you want to be a part of a church that is reaching the world for Christ? A church that has an unshakable faith in God? A church that is mighty in the Scriptures? Do you want to do that? It's to your advantage then to obey the teaching of our leaders. Submit to their leadership out of a real, genuine respect and honor that you hold for them. And to do everything that you can to make their job a joy and not a misery. Everything you can. I'm not asking us to do anything radical here today. I'm simply asking you and me to believe everything that the Bible says about the office of pastor and then respond appropriately when you see that office filled by faithful men who take it seriously. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, I just want to especially take this moment to thank you for the men that you've given this church, the leadership that we, have, we are blessed to have here. Father, I ask that you would help us to not take this for granted. There are many here who do not understand how blessed we are. I pray you'd make it abundant to them. To them, this, this leadership has just fallen into their laps and they're unaware. They're unaware how uncommon it is in America today to have elders and leaders who are so committed to your word, who love and care for the church, what it needs, long to see it grow, and faithfully pray over it. Whose hearts break when people, when they see people fall away. Lord, let us not take this for granted. God, that the elders here, and that Travis would know how much we appreciate them, how much we appreciate them and their leadership. In Jesus' name.